1: Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law.
0: Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observation, and most importantly, my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law again because it intersects with just about every other area of the law that you can imagine, especially if, like uh, I do, I also do litigation inside bankruptcy. That is to say, sometimes people come into the bankruptcy case and sue my client for alleged bad acts before they got into bankruptcy. And then sometimes I sue people, creditors who might have done something that caused my client to have to end up in bankruptcy. So it's a very fascinating area of the law. And you young folks out there looking for um, uh, areas to practice law, I recommend it highly. Now, I also practice some related fields in my overall consumer and small business financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference point, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat and got an ch- opportunity to travel the world with my dad and my mother remarried service people and my stepfathers, and I married a soldier, and I helped create a uh, um, a new generation of military brat with my former spouse who was also in the military. As such, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I've shared with you many times, but never get enough of telling you about my wonderful grandmothers who actually both helped to raise me. And I learned so much about economics from them, believe it or not, although neither one of them had advanced degrees in economics, Because these women survived the four great economic challenges of the past century. That is to say, the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, and unfortunately, the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through and to our society today. As these women helped raise me and loved me and shared with me the great stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, it is out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me, along with my dad in spirit, urging me on to do the right thing that when the situation is right, I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more and more probably than not these days, the lack thereof, or at least an insufficient amount thereof, and your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate your or your families or your small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational form. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as it. educational form for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least an outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I sincerely believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets and or your debt. So, today we continue our discussion on what we need to know about our banking and other depository financial institutions, how they work, how they are regulated and supervised, so we can obtain the knowledge base that is sufficient enough to not only protect us, help us protect our own liquid assets deposited into and used by these financial institutions to make a profit, and just as importantly, so that we gain the knowledge and wisdom, we need to be able to not only be able to distinguish between the political candidates and their sometimes (laughs) B.S. In order for us to make wise choices in order to put in office or to allow to stay in office, only those politicians who care about and spend the time required to research and implement laws and perform the necessary oversight of the executive branch and independent agency heads that will ensure the safety and soundness of the institutions that house our money and not let them waste their time with all this necessitistic n- sarc- n- sarc- <laughs> need to kind of like keep us looking at, Sparkly things like anti-wokeness and critical race theory, and that's nonsense, and they need to focus on doing things that will show that they're competent to help us use our tax dollars to lay a foundation to make sure that um, banks are run properly and not use the salaries that we pay them to help implement laws that make lax oversight. The goal in order for them to get financial contributions. Now, the last time we were together, we looked at three topics. We took a look at the structure of the balance sheets of banks in general and Silicon Valley Bank in particular, which was heavily invested in and funded by the depository accounts of startups and venture capitalists and their owners. And because Of its years of assisting both venture capitalists and venture capital-based technology companies get properly launched and sustained, including some run by women and people of color, the local business community on the whole believed Silicon Valley Bank to be a great place to have a banking relationship if you were in the technology sector, either as a venture capitalist or as a high-tech startup. In fact, it was this overconcentration in one type of banking customer, as both its source of funds from the deposits, as well as the uses of those deposits to make personal and business loans, to the back to the same set of entrepreneurs and businesses that turned out to be part of their problem. Then we also looked at some of the technical financial reasons Silicon Valley Bank failed, including the economic relationship between inflation and interest rates, increases and decreases that are implemented by the Federal Reserve, and the relationship of interest rates to the value of bonds, as well as their inverse relationship between bond prices and bond yields. Now, while the concentration of account holders may have laid the predicate for the failure, it is also true and it can be objectively proven that the marketplace timing of these economic factors that I laid out and the market conditions that have taken place in the last few months that played a more substantial role in Silicon Valley Bank's demise. Now, then we looked at the fact that Silicon Valley Bank's parent, a company entitled Silicon Valley Bank or SVB financial group, this past Friday, March 17th, 2023 filed for bankruptcy, a chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and, uh, after Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by its regulators. Now, you should know that it's not unusual for a bank holding company to file for bankruptcy after its banking subsidiary is placed into federal receivership. For example, we we only have to look back to 2008 when Washington Mutual filed for Chapter 11 protection after its subsidiary, Washington Mutual Bank collapsed, becoming the largest bank failure in the United States history. Washington Mutual Bank was taken over by federal regulators and it was later sold to J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. And as I informed you last time, I went online and looked up the bankruptcy case and it is denominated as SVB Financial Group, case number 23-10367, and it was filed in the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York and Chief Bankruptcy Judge Martin Glenn is presiding. The bankruptcy was properly filed in New York because notwithstanding the fact that SVB is located in the Bay Area, the holding company was headquartered or is headquartered back in Manhattan. Now, when we come back, we're going to continue to look at what we need to know about our banking and other depository financial institutions, how they work, how they are regulated and supervised, including what mechanisms and safeguards in our banking system that are focused on ensuring that our liquid assets are safe when depositing them into banks and other financial institutions. Now, there are three financial entity insurance companies that perform this insurance Functions. They are the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation for banks, the National Credit Union Administration for credit unions, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation for brokerage houses. But first, we'll take a short break, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead.
0: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion by taking a look at what we all need to know about our banking and other financial institutions, especially those that handle our deposits, how they work and how they are regulated and supervised, including what mechanisms and safeguards in our banking system that are focused on ensuring that our liquid assets are safe when we deposit them into banks and other financial institutions. As I said before the break, there are three financial entity insurance companies that perform these insurance functions. They are the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation for Banks, the National Credit Union Administration for Credit Unions, and the Securities Investors Protection Corporation for Brokerage Houses. But first, let's level set by focusing on just who regulates banks. It depends on how they are chartered. A chartered bank is any financial institution governed by a state or national charter. A charter is basically their articles of incorporation, which guide the bank's actions and ensure that they operate according to certain of its state and federal banking rules, and sometimes both. The idea of chartered banks came about in 1863 by then-President Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite presidents, and his Treasury Secretary, Simon P. Chase, I wonder if it was related to the Chase family. (laughs) They enacted the National Currency Act, which established the office of the Comptroller of the Currency and authorized it to charter national banks. Then the next year in 1864, the National Currency Act became known as the National Bank Act, which provided a national banking system. You should know that as of October 31, 2021, there were 779 active banks in the United States with a national charter, including ones that we all know about, such as Capital One and J P Morgan Chase and PNC Bank and Santander Bank and TD Bank. Now, in the United States, chartered banks can, uh, again, be regulated by the state or reg- uh, federal government. Now, while state charters are controlled by state agencies, federal charters abide by, um, federal regulations set forth by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is a division of the United States, uh, Treasury Department, an agency of the executive branch, in which, you know, a- an article Two, uh, uh, um, a part of our United States Constitution, and it can be found in all the regulations. Regulations and laws can be found in what I call our big book of laws at Title 12, Banks and Banking. So in the last few weeks, we've looked at Title uh, 11 uh, that deals with bankruptcy, and we've looked at uh, Title 10 that deals with the military. So again, the big book of all of our laws, kind of like, you know, Moses coming down from the mountain, only these laws are made by regular human beings that are in Congress, are found in the United States Code. Now, banks can choose whether they like to be state or federally chartered. They may also convert from one type to another, and many times they do. But no matter under which government hierarchy they choose to be controlled, all state or federally chartered banks are required to maintain deposit insurance issued by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC. Now, the FDIC issues Uh, insures checking accounts, savings accounts, money market deposit accounts, and certificates of deposits up to $250,000. The FDIC does not, however, cover stocks or mutual funds or annuities or securities or other financial products that a bank may offer. These financial uh, products Although they might be acquired from a bank, uh, they are supervised and insured by the Securities Investment Investor Protection Corporation, SIPC, nor does the FDIC insure deposits at credit unions. They are supervised by the National Credit Union Administration, so we need to keep that in mind. However, before we take a deep dive into these supervisory agencies, I want to hone in a bit more on Silicon Valley Bank. Again, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, March 10th, 2023, because it was chartered in California, its state regulator, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, stepped in, took control closed the bank and it appointed the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation as the bank's receiver. Now, in its role as the receiver, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation created a new entity, the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara, and immediately transferred all of Silicon Valley Bank's insured deposits, that is up to $250,000, to this new entity. Now, to protect the depositors on Monday, March 13, 2023, the FDIC then, then transferred all of the Deposits, both insured and uninsured, of Silicon Valley Bank to a bridge bank called the Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, NA, a full service bridge bank that will be operated by the FDIC as it markets the institution to potential buyers. Now, while the deposit account under $250,000. Uh, in this bridge bank, they will be handled in a manner that was very similar to the way uh, SVB handled those deposits. However, deposits over the $250,000 threshold will have to be sorted out through the receivership process, which is similar to, but very different from bankruptcy. The FDIC has established a website for you to go to and obtain update information if you were a client, a customer, a, a, a depositor, uh, of SVB and you had monies over the $250,000. That particular location is can be found at www.fdic.gov forward slash resources forward slash resolution forward slash bank failures forward slash failed banks Silicon Valley Bank. Also the FDIC uh, is asking that former SVB Customers would deposit accounts over 250 to call this number, one to schedule a telephone appointment with an FDIC claims agent. Unfortunately, depositors can expect long hold times because there's lots of money and lots of people involved. Therefore, you might want to reach out to the FDIC by email and send an email to depositors Services plural, at fdic.gov. You can also access the FDIC's claims portal, which is located at https slash slash resolutions.fdic.gov forward slash claims portal. Now, the FDIC will have to thoroughly uh, review all of SVB's records and accounts to determine whether there will be significant assets on hand to cover all of the SV, SVB's deposits and lending obligations. There will likely be a delay in dispersing the funds at worst. Just as in bankruptcy, there may be a pro rata distribution to depositors. But then again, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury have stated publicly that all deposits, including those over $250,000, will be covered fully. And by, via a mechanism where those who are insured by these particular, uh, by the FDIC, will have to do an allocation an and increase premium, and supposedly none of our tax dollars will be used for this particular form of bailout. But we all should know that historically, under normal circumstances, for similar situated, smaller regional banks such as SVB that failed. And had not been predetermined to be a systemically important bank to our overall banking infrastructure. In such cases, absent an acquisition and assumption of the deposit accounts by another bank, the excess over the limits were distributed. It was distributed over a timely process under the receivership program. That usually meant that if there were sufficient funds shortly after a bank's closure, an advanced dividend to the depositors who had deposited funds over the limits would receive a partial distribution. Then the depositors would receive something called a receivership certificate setting forth the remaining amount of their excess underinsured deposits after the initial dividend payment was made. The information on the certificate is based on the books of the bank in question. As the FDIC sells the remaining assets, future dividend payments will be made to to depositors up until they're uh, fully repaid. Again, because receivership is similar to bankruptcy, it uses a waterfall priority uh, repayment structure. That means that after payment of administrative expenses, depositors would be paid on an, for that uninsured portion of their deposits in the following priority. Depositors first, general unsecured creditors second, subordinated debt third, and then stockholders would get anything left over if anything is left over. So when we get together next time, we're going to go into a little bit more detail about this process, but we're going to leave it there for now. Um, uh that is always in closing here at Selwyn's Law. We want to stay on the right side of the law, including the laws and regulations implemented by our government to safeguard our hard earned dollars when we deposit them in a federal or state chartered and regulated financial institution for the good of our entire society. So you take care till next time. Mask up when you're out and about. Bye for now.